0: You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Oh, 1890. There is a lot to talk about in 1890. So I started with January, and Alice Sanger, also a Hoosier, became the first female staffer in the White House under Benjamin Harrison. And I really wanted her to be a Kappa, but she was not. You mentioned Nellie Bly and how she started her journey. So in 1890, in January, she completes her round-the-world journey in 72 days. Um, She's also an incredible journalist, investigative journalist, and did lots of of really cool work. Also in January, President Benjamin Harrison signed the Oklahoma Organic Act, and so that would help Oklahoma work towards statehood. He was really active in, in states, While he was in office, two states were actually admitted to the Union, both Idaho and Wyoming. They became the 43rd and 44th states in July. Also in July 1890, Vincent Van Gogh dies. And then skipping ahead to September, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints issued the 1890 Manifesto. And sorry, Mary, that ended the official practice of polygamy, so you can't be a sister-wife
1: Oh, I, I don't think that was ever an ambition of mine.
0: Actually, you can. TV tells us you can. You yeah, just, yeah <laughs> that's true. Under church doctrine. By October, the Daughters of the American Revolution are founded in Washington, D.C., and in December, um, we reach some pretty dark days in the U.S. in terms of how we treat people who are indigenous to North America. Because on uh, December 15th, Hunkpapa Papa Lakota leader Sitting Bull is killed by police on Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And then on the 29th, um, there's the massacre at Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And that made the Lakota Sioux, the last tribe to be defeated and confined to a reservation. So a sad time for sure in December. The first issue that I reviewed is from March 1890. It's volume seven, number two. And the very first article is titled, Should a Greek Letter Magazine Contain Only Fraternity Articles? And I know our current editors um, always walk a fine line between drawing the interest of our own members and readers who may not be members. And both are important and both are necessary to the legitimacy, I think, and the survival of our magazine. And I love when our own members love the magazine, but that seems like it's a foregone conclusion. They, They already should love it, I would hope. Um, it's when non members read our magazine and then recognize what an incredible organization that we have um, that I'm most proud. On page 58, you mentioned the, the discussions about some of the careers that women are pursuing. So on page 58, Mila Tupper or Mila Tupper writes about women in the ministry. And I like her statement that in 1890, the work of women as ministers is no longer an experiment. On page 62, I was interested to see one of the first instances of the suggestion that chapters are most interested in the, quote, dignity and stability that a chapter could gain by having its dwelling place fixed, not only for the college year, as is often the custom, but for a good number of years ahead. So they're discussing chapter housing and who thinks that's a good idea, who thinks it's not, who thinks it's even reachable. And this is where I love the intellect of students, especially students who are used to debating um, because several members wrote in about chapter facilities and some posed both the pros and the cons. Uh, Many lean heavily on the pros, but I really appreciated the statement from Annie McKinnon at the University of Kansas. She is all for chapter rooms, but she wonders about chapter houses. And she writes, will not the separate and constant chapter life tend to produce a fraternity clannishness and more and more tightly drawn social lines in college life? And then another submission um, was from someone with the initials EHB, who I think is Emily Hudson Bright. At the time, she's the grand secretary and she's from Boston. um, And she goes on to become fraternity president. But I love how she writes, it has come to me so often in my dreams, this Kappa room of mine, not a high-studded spacious hall, but a long, cozy parlor, one that's big enough to hold a great deal of Kappa love and serenity. It's bright enough to shut out the weariness and pettiness of our college lives. So you're house hunting right now, Dr. Oz. Doesn't that sound like something we all would want in our own house?
1: I know it is is—is for me, and my... Um the house that i'm interested in has a really long um living room it's mm-hmm. probably at one time two rooms but yeah you could definitely have a uh, quite a few people in mm-hmm. there and it would it would be cozy there is a fireplace and pocket doors and
0: you know. yet it's bright enough to shut out the weariness of your life
1: yeah <laughs> i really like that it isn't weary so.
0: <laughs> Um, On page 71 in the College and Fraternity Notes, so you'll also appreciate, instead of Greek gossip, they have now renamed the column uh, College and Fraternity Notes, and there's a funny game of telephone, essentially, where information seems to get muddled the more it's shared. Um, The last entry in the Fraternity Notes is from the, uh, the Phi Kappa Psi Shield, and they are reporting on a report that they read in the Sigma Alpha Epsilon record. So the Phi Sides are saying that they read in SAE's magazine uh, that there is a new chapter of Kappa Kappa Gamma at Mount Union College in Alliance, Ohio, and it's been organized with five members. Well, the editors of the Golden Key write simply that this is startling information because, and I think it's a a rather subtle dismissal of the false information because we've never had a chapter at Mount Union. So the Phi are picking up the news from the SAEs and who knows what group was actually organizing there, but they they accidentally wrote that it was Kappa Kappa Gamma. And then it was sad to me that on page 88, the Grand Secretary, Emily Hudson Bright, um, has submitted two announcements. The first is that on February 10th, 1890, the Charter of Omicron chapter at Simpson College, my own chapter, whose name has stood under Gamma Province for the past 10 years, was declared null and void. So that's it. Omicron is gone. And the second note is that a charter has been granted for a chapter at the Pennsylvania State University, which we now know as the University of Pennsylvania. When I first read that, I thought they meant Penn State, but they meant uh, Penn, which was the Beta Alpha chapter. So talk about cutting to the chase. Bye, Simpson. Hello, Penn. (laughs) And then at the end, there's a newer section called Once a Week. And that's a calendar of current literature, so the notion of including non-fraternity news in the magazine uh, is still still taking hold. So then in June 1890, still volume 7, number 3, that issue opens with the reminiscences of Iota chapter at DePauw, so it's essentially a history of the chapter from their perspective and um, the editors request these types of reminiscences for future issues. But it includes their great pride in the initiation into honorary membership, Mary Livermore, uh, the journalist, the abolitionist, and the advocate of women's rights. And I'm reminded that when chapters initiated these honorary members who were quite famous in their own time, Um, They often spent time with them personally, and that must have been a huge deal, and Iota chapter reflects on that experience as a highlight in their chapter's history. So not just initiating her, but the time that she spent with them as individual members. And then they end with a comment on the subject of chapter houses, which is interesting because today, Iota Chapter is rightly proud of their beautiful chapter house. But in 1890, they discuss how they secured a room, furnished it nicely and enjoyed it for one season. But the mothers of several girls decided that it was more appropriate that we should meet at our homes. This combined with other reasons induced us to return to our former regime. So while the idea of affording your women, um, affording young women higher education in the 19th century was pretty well established at this point, there were still some hesitations among their their guardians or their parents over what was appropriate. So their their freedoms maybe weren't as wide as we may think. On page 103, there's an interesting article from Marion Butterfield Knight from Phi Chapter at Boston. And she writes in about a young graduate's intention to do settlement work in New York City after graduation, but instead was called home to assist when her mother falls sick. And the young graduate says she has turned into nurse and housekeeper instead. And that while she recognizes that as her place, that that's her her calling and her role, she really is anxious to be doing something that is worthwhile, something to help the world be it ever so little. And Knight comments that the remark is suggestive of the present tendency among college-bred women. And she argues that this this is a thing that seems fleeting at that time. But I would argue that it's generally the tendency of women. She speaks to what a lot of women still feel today, that the demands on time, strength, and sympathies are much greater on women, and the sense of responsibility often becomes a burden, more so than it might be on men. Uh, She writes that women do not often have the luxury to just be a scholarly recluse or focus solely on their chosen profession, whether that profession be in an actual professional field or as a homemaker. So she closes with the sort of sympathetic warning and a challenge, quote, much depends upon us, this first generation of college graduates. Not all thoughtful persons consider the experiment of higher education for women a complete success. It is ours to so hold our own through these pioneer days that all question of its experience will be done away with. We may well avail ourselves of the possible helps within and without. So no pressure, 19th century women in higher education. (laughs) You just gotta prove that everything you're doing and everything um, you have been allowed to do is worthwhile. Still on page 107, they're discussing chapter houses, and Sigma Chapter argues that the value of chapter homes could be significant to alumni. So again, we see more discussion about alumni and how active they are. We're 20 years after the founding of the organization, so we have have more alums at this point. So they write that, quote, a member not in full active membership may often be kept away from meetings through ignorance as to which one particular place of a dozen is the appointed one. They simply don't know where to go for the meetings because still in 1890, chapters are expecting that if there is an alumna in the area, she will still be active in the chapter and will participate in their meetings. And then page 110, uh, this is probably my favorite part of this issue. Lily Moore from Lambda Chapter at Akron, or Bucknell, writes in about Dr. Edward Clark's book, Sex and Education. Um, She writes that it was published 17 years prior about, and then she talks about his argument that while women have the same mental capacity for education as a man, Her natural constitution as a woman would result in serious disorders if she attempted continuous and systematic labor that a man thrives on. Essentially, she'll become a physical wreck. (laughs) Some of you may remember that Edie Mayo from George Washington University discussed this in our exhibit, Tradition of Leadership, Education to Enfranchisement. And Lily Moore from Lambda finds that really the only good thing to come from Clark's uh, little book, as she calls it, is At least it set the world to thinking so she can find the tiny silver lining that at least brought it up for discussion. But Clark's book is known for being damaging to women in higher education for so long because um, he tried to argue that women just physically could not handle the rigors um, of academics. And then for anyone who is reading the issues on Capaedia, there is a page that is included at the end of this issue incorrectly. When the scanning was done, um, they, they split it up incorrectly. And there's a photo of Mrs. Julia Ward Howe, honorary member of Phi Chapter, initiated in November, 1884. And that picture just appears as the last page of this issue. And it's notable because it's the first image to be included in an issue of our magazine but it didn't actually appear until the next issue. So if you are looking at those on Capipedia, um, don't be confused by that photo because it really should appear here in the September 1890 issue, still in volume seven. Uh, and this is the last number of this volume, number four. And that issue opens with Julia Wardhouse's poem that she wrote for the 1890 convention that was held in Bloomington, Bloomington, Illinois, the previous month. The poem's beautiful and I love that last stanza Then shall a golden key once more unlock for you the temple's door. It's keeping the glad summons when, well done, ye faithful, enter in. So that's a a neat line, I think, a nice charge to Kappa's from this super famous um, honorary member, Julia Ward Howe, who, again, when she was initiated by Phi Chapter, she actually spent time with the women. She, at that point, was one of the most famous women in all of the world. And so the fact that Phi Chapter... Invited her to be a member and got to spend time with her is pretty amazing. And then that she wrote this poem for a convention. And you know, uh, key coverage of the conventions is my favorite. And this was the 10th convention, but the reporting is kind of a snooze. They talk about how much of the business and planning had taken place in the long months before, which allowed for a really successful three days and there's a lot more emphasis on the social aspects of this meeting and the the great pleasure that so many take in meeting one another. Epsilon chapter from Illinois Wesleyan is the hostess chapter and they write to thank everyone for attending and sharing their great satisfaction in hosting one another. But the and they include like the program and the menu and things like that but the usually um, really brightly colored depictions of, of what happened at the convention seems to be missing. And they don't even mention that at this convention, the fleur-de-lis is adopted as the flower. As we, we talked about in your year, year in 1889, that there were arguments against the iris, the fleur-de-lis, because it wasn't available year round. It was sometimes difficult to get in certain areas of the country. But the argument that I think won most people over was when they said but that's why we should choose it. We should choose it because it's unique like we are and it's, it's beautiful and stately. And so the maidenhair fern, and what was the one that you,
1: the hyacinth that was uh, Sigma's Nebraska's. uh, Yeah. And the carnation is the
0: flower of a lot of other women's fraternities. So I know that was discussed as well. Um, and then the sapphire was chosen as the jewel and the official colors of dark and light blue were also reaffirmed. In these 20 years from 1870 to 1890, a lot of chapters have developed their own local traditions and customs. So there was some confusion, especially with the grand chapter form of government in those early years. There was confusion of, well, are we, are, do we have our own colors? Does the fraternity itself have its own colors? So they, they settled a lot of that at this convention. And I was interested to note that in the college and fraternity notes, the American newspaper directory for 1890 gave the circulation of all the Greek letter magazines and the the key editors included our own, uh, which said that we had a circulation of 500. So knowing that our circulation was 500, I was curious to note that total membership was 1600. That would be initiated, so that doesn't include the people who have passed away. Uh, We have 24 chapters and no alum association. So it probably went to a lot of individuals, but then also the chapters where they could share their issues. Uh, The chapter letters talk a lot about commencement (laughs) and um, everything that happened in that previous spring. But to me as archivists, the chapter letters are most interesting because the naming convention has finally been agreed upon and taken effect. So you had mentioned a letter from New Chapter, which caught my ear for a second, because I was like, oh, new New Chapter at Franklin University, but it was New Chapter at Ohio State University. So they decided to clean up that naming, chapters that were given the names of now deceased chapters like New at Ohio State, was given the name New after the closed chapter at Franklin is now called Beta New. The Beta was added because it's the second letter in the Greek alphabet, and Ohio State is the second chapter to use the name New. So another example is Gamma Rho at Allegheny. They are the third chapter to be given the name Rho, so the third letter in the Greek alphabet, Gamma, is affixed to the front of their name. And then when the editors wrap up this issue before the exchanges from other groups, They talk about how, yes, they're also interested in the social aspects of convention, but they see it as an opportunity to really take an informal account of stock to see what has happened in those previous two years. So they are very helpful and wrap it up with the chapters that have opened and closed. So again, hello, Ohio State, and the chapter at the University of Pennsylvania, goodbye, poor Simpson. They also mentioned that a new ritual, which has greatly enhanced the effectiveness of initiations, is now available. So that's a big change that is just a tiny footnote in this issue. And then they announced the publication of a new catalog or directory. and That's fitting, since in 2020 we also began work on a new directory. And so my last issue, December 1890, we are now in a new volume, volume 8, and this is the first issue, and it opens with a Christmas poem And then in that sort of after commencement tune that you were talking about, they have an article on women in law, so discussing how that profession is now wide open to women. We would not consider it to be wide open today, but back then it was. And then the section titled the Parthenon includes submissions about fraternity life. So they're discussing chapter houses, fraternity politics, and so on. Um, and it's interesting to see who answers the call of the editors for this exchange. So they seem quite willing to submit their opinions, but some are just initials. It's almost like they don't want to be identified as openly as some of the others. And the chapter letters take up a quarter of this issue but i was interested to see that the last note of the editors was news that they received just before going to press that the committee in charge of the proposed panhellenic convention to be held in boston during the coming spring has been adopted and invitations already extended so i can't wait for our next episode when we get to the full report uh, in that march 1891
1: issue and you can Learn more about the first Panhellenic Conference if you listen to uh, Fran Beck's and my episode on Voyage of Discovery where we talk about the formation of the Panhellenic Conference.
0: Yes, and you can find those, uh, all the episodes of Voyage of Discovery on Kappapedia. I have that under the museum section, so wiki.kappa.org, and then under museums, you'll see our history podcasts. And finally, in the exchanges with the publications of other Greek letter organizations, the editor of the key unites with the editor of Delta Gamma's Ankara, which is interesting because you'll recall the tension between both of them earlier. But these two editors come together in petitioning for a list of things from contributors to their magazines. Number one, they want more voluntary contributions. Number two, they want more synonyms for the word fraternity. Number three, they want something besides the moral support of its constituents. Number four, they want a subject of fraternity interest that has never been discussed before. Number five, they want the exchanges not to roll their papers into such a shape that reading them makes life a burden. (laughs) Number six, want more interested alumni. Number seven, they want a trace of originality in the chapter letters. (laughs) So... Apparently, they are not happy with these chapter letter submissions. Uh, Number eight, they want it, I assume, because they put it in quotes. They want the word rushing abolished. And maybe they also mean the practices that went along with that. Number nine, we still complain about this. They want penmanship taught as one of the higher branches of education. (laughs) And number 10, they want chapter correspondence provided with calendars. Probably so they know their deadlines. And number 11, they want paper manufactured with only one side to it. <laughs> None of this double, double-sided double nonsense. So I wonder if editors realize that they just so often sound like scolding school teachers. <laughs> Get your act together, correspondents. Get a calendar and learn how to write. <laughs> I love it. And last but not least, in the spirit of conventions, the editors of the Golden Key second the suggestion of Delta Kappa Epsilon, Deeks, in favor of a convention of fraternity editors. And I think we have long known that when Greek letter organizations couldn't get along or agree on much, they hadn't even had this first 1891 meeting. It was the editors of the magazines who really first started corresponding, and they saw the benefit of meeting together. And they still have one of the most successful and consistent meetings, FEA or the Fraternity Editors Association. So I think we can really look to our magazine editors as being the, um, the connection between
1: all of our organizations. So that's that. That's 1890. Well, that's all the news that's fit to print in 1889.
0: And in 1890. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, Dr. Oz. And we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Key Matters brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith. Thank you.